All right, good morning. Good to see all you guys here at our main campus. Welcome to you guys that are joining us online. So we're just going to jump in. We are in a series called Does Prayer Work? Foundationally built out of this idea. The majority of people in this room, if you have followed Jesus Christ for any amount of time and said a prayer, you have probably asked yourself this question. Does he hear me and is it going to work, right? Or does he hear me and it didn't work? But the idea is we want to focus on what does it mean when we say the question or when we ask the question, does prayer work? How should we evaluate that and how should it look in our own lives? So the series is based upon that idea. Well, foundationally, we started with this. If we want to understand does prayer work, we have to know that we have to learn something from Jesus, right? That's the first idea. The idea was, is like the disciples. So the disciples grew up in a family where they were taught how to pray. They were all Jews, right? So they grew up, they were taught how to pray, they looked at Jesus, and when they looked at Jesus, they're like, the way we're praying and the way you're praying is different, so we need to learn, right? So for all of us, regardless of how you've been brought up, in whatever place that you've been brought up, we want to go back to not what we learned from society or what we learned from church, but what did we learn from Scripture? How did Jesus pray? What did it look like? Because here's what we know. The reason they ask how to pray and how to learn to pray is because it worked, right? So for Jesus, prayer worked, and the idea of what prayer is fit, you know, with what Scripture says and how it's going to work in our lives. So with that, Jesus builds a foundation from the beginning. This is what he says. If you want prayer to work, you have to understand what it's for, which it's for us to build a relationship with our Father God, right? That's what prayer is. It's constant communication constant relationship, and for us to understand how to go to him as children do. That was the foundation, right? The foundation was treat God as you would a good father, right? This would be the idea. Any person that's had a good father knows this, right? If you've had a good father, you've seen a good father figure, when you need something, you go to him, right? And you know that they're going to be there, you know that they're going to listen, you know that they're going to come through for you, so we approach it with this childlike faith, the response that if something's wrong, this is the first thing that I do, right? So that's the foundation. Now I want to share a story with you because I don't think always our response is that of a child. So I'm going to give you an example for me personally. So when I was on the board of the House of Hope, we used to travel um, all over the world, and the idea was we would want to go to close countries, so close countries being uh, countries that are not open to Christianity, right? So we'd want to go to these closed countries. And the first thing that we would want to do is set up a humanitarian effort that could then shelter a church, right? So what we did was is we would go into closed countries and we would start orphanages, right? I mean, obviously there's a huge need for orphanages. And so we would go in, we would start orphanages. Once the orphanages were started, you could plant a church inside of the orphanage, which the humanitarian bit of the, the orphanage was good, but it also protected the church from persecution. Because unlike the United States of America, in closed countries, when you go to church, you will be persecuted. That's just the way it is, right? So if you're going to go to church, you're going to be persecuted. You don't have to worry about that here, but in other countries they do. So how could they go to church with the least amount of persecution possible? They did it inside of an orphanage and it protected them. So we'd help set that up. But one of the things we found out is when we set up these orphanages is there's not a lot of clean water. That was a big problem. So if you would test the water 
at most of these orphanages, we, we'd take a, a, a thing that had stuff in it, we'd put the water in it, you'd hold it up after, you know, one night, and you could see the parasites, like, inside of it, and the water turned black, and you'd open it up, and it'd smell like sewer, you know, but this was the water that these kids were drinking. So a water filtration system was built here, designed here, and then we took the pieces or got the pieces over there and we did what's called the clean water project, right? So we wanted to do this clean water project and we deemed it living water, right? That was the idea. Go to the orphanages, get the water filtration systems in, and then preach the gospel, right? That was the idea. So when we got over there, like it is in most countries, if you haven't traveled overseas into closed countries, they tend to give you like what not to do, right? Because you are in areas that, you know, people aren't open like it is here. So they're like, these are the things not to do. And so they went through the list and they, they left it with this. Like, remember, India, this is where we uh, ended up going. India is, has an anti-conversion law. And that anti-conversion law, if you convert a Hindu to Christianity, it's automatically sentenced to death. Like, that's just a deal. So if you convert a Hindu to Christianity, automatically sentenced to death. So we suggest that if you're doing this project and you're leading people to Jesus, don't do open baptisms. Probably a bad idea, right? Like, you might end up in a bad spot. So anyway, so we get four groups. We all spread out. We're all out doing this. One of our groups ended up at this orphanage in one of the a pretty hostile area. So it's pretty cool. They got in the orphanage and they got the water filtration and then they went outside of the orphanage and they preached the gospel. And guess what? Somebody got saved. It was really cool in this area because it just normally wouldn't happen because it's heavily controlled by the Naxalites, which were kind of the uh, Taliban of India. And so uh, somebody got saved and it was really cool and they were so excited about it. Well, then guess what the guy asked for right afterwards? We wanted to get baptized, right? And so our group, you know how you are when you're full of faith and excited, right? Like, God's going to protect us. And so they decided to do an open baptism, right? And so when they did this open baptism, within a half hour, 500 Hindus converged on this house, took our team, put them in a taxi to drag them outside of the village to burn them alive. That was what was going to happen. So they got them out, got them in the car, surrounded them by, you know how they all like ride the little mopeds over there? So they surrounded them all at that, made a line, started to head out that way. Well, somehow the police got involved, and so the police came, wanted to know what was going on, and they couldn't have these people, you know, burned by a mob. So the police said what was going on. They said they baptized this guy. He was a Hindu. He's now a Christian. So the police arrested our group, put him in jail, and while this was all going on, so as this is, you know, uh, happening, we find out from everybody else that our team has been surrounded and our team has been arrested and our team has been put in jail. And here's what we all know, right? So the law, what's the law? If you convert a Hindu to Christianity, he's sentenced by death. So automatically, you know, I'm, I'm the team leader, you know, with the rest of these guys. So automatically, I'm like, we get everybody together, like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And immediately, I'm like in Rambo mode. Like, we, do we break them out? Do we go get guns? Like, like... How far away are they? You know, you just can't let these guys in here. Nobody else would feel that way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, I got to do something. These are your friends. Like, you're not just going to let them go there. You know what's going to happen. So automatically, I'm like, to call an embassy. Do we need to go storm the, you know, the jail? What do we need to do? So I'm getting all around. And the guy looked at me, you know, John Joseph at the time, he looked at me and he said, there's nothing you can do except fast and pray. 
when I'm like. And, and I want you to know, like, like, I know that in my mind, but I didn't know it in my heart. I'm just being honest with you. Right? I'm just being honest that, and I'm, and I'm even going to, you know, go to this depth. I mean, I'm in my mind processing, like, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what to do. And I know that they're going to fast and pray. And guess what the church in India did? All of these churches, they were notified. Every one of them stayed up all night, and they fasted and prayed. And we got to call the next morning, got to call the next morning, say, hey, and there's kind of a long story that goes into it, but, you know, your team has been released, and they're on the way back to you. Now, I want to tell you this story for this reason. My automatic response to something in my life was not prayer. My automatic response was, I'm going to go fix it. I'm going to go do something about it. I'm going to call in reinforcements. I'm going to do what I need to do. If we're doing prayer right, like if we get to the place where prayer is right in your life, your automatic response to the things of life is going to be to pray. That's just going to be your automatic response. When something happens, the automatic response is to pray. Like just in my own life, I was in Montana. You know, we were out hunting in Montana. I get a phone call from the neighbor. Hey, all 200 of your cows are out running around, right? Immediately, I know who to call. I called Zach Heiner, right? And I called Chris Steffen, and I said, all 200 cows are running all over the place. You guys need to come over. Eric ended up over there, right? You were in that group. So if you can imagine this sea of 200 black calves running around everywhere, right? But immediately, I knew who to call. There was a problem, my immediate response to the person who could fix it, right? The same idea is in prayer. When I pray... Immediate, when I get to the place where something happens in my life, my immediate response should go to the person who's going to fix it, which is God, right? So when we pray, we have got to get to the place where we understand this concept. You have a part, right? There's always something that we should do. But you need to remember the person that's going to change the things in your life is not you. The person who's going to change the trajectory of your life is God. You do your part. You participate in your part. But the person that's going to transform things is going to be God. And so we need to get used to doing our part and giving the rest of it to God and trusting that he's going to change the things that we're asking him to change. So with that, I want us to go into Scripture again. We're going to go to Matthew 6. We're going to start in verse 5. We're going to go over what we talked about last week. So Matthew 6, verse 5, talks about this whole idea. The disciples wanted to know how to pray, not what to pray, really important. Not what words, but what was the how or why behind it. And so Jesus is teaching them how to pray. So this is recap from last week, right? Recap from last week was Matthew 6, starting in verse 5. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, because hypocrites, they love to st uh, pray standing in the synagogues or on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray that your pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So here was one of your challenges last week. Your challenge last week was to get away, right? Because we recognize this. Some of us pray on our mowers. Some pray on our tractors, some pray in our cars, some pray when we're driving down the road. Some of us do multitasking prayer, right? Doing something while you're doing something, right? Which is nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with praying while you're doing something. 
But there is a part of prayer that he tells you this. There is a time that you need to get alone. There is a time where you need to put away all of the distractions and you need to focus on listening to what God has to say. And here was your challenge, because honestly, I think this is the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is this. When you pray, not whether you will hear, it's whether you will listen. Because here's the problem. Most of the time when we pray, we pray to use God, not to be used by God. Does that make sense? So when you pray, part of our natural tendency is to do this. I have a need. I'm going to get alone. I'm going to pray. I'm going to put my money in the vending machine. I'm going to type what I want. And my expectation is, is that I can use God. And if I do it right, I get what I want. Does that make sense? Right? Like we, we pray to use him. But remember this. A lot of people are like, I never hear from God. You know why you might not be hearing from God? Because you're only praying to use him and not be used by him. Because you would understand, right? The reason that God would talk to you, do you know why he would talk to you? Because you're his number one option. Right? Like, he's going to talk to you because here's what he knows. To a world that's trying to understand an unseen God is only going to see God how? Through you, right? So he's going to tell you, call this person, walk across the room to this person, pray for this person, give money to this person. He's going to talk to you because option number one is we're his vessel. And I've always said, do you think God's sitting up there saying, well, you know, today Troy's asking, but I just don't have anything to, to do to come back tomorrow at the same time. Right? Like, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Like, if we're really going and you're sitting in your prayer room and you're sitting in your prayer closet, and yes, go ahead, put it stuff in the vending machine, ask God for your needs, but are you saying, I am your vessel and I will do whatever you ask me to do? Because my guess is if you're hearing silence, it might be because you're not willing to do what he wants you to do. That would be my guess. My guess is that you're just at a place where you don't want to be used, but you want to use. So in this, getting in a room is get in a room with this idea. I'm your vessel. Speak to me, and I will do whatever you tell me to do. And when we do those things, I think you're going to hear from God. And I hope some of you have some of those stories that you got alone this week. I listened. I heard what he said, and I went and did it, and God's alive. Like, I can see. Like, these are the things that, 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 are, that are going on. Then he goes on and says this. Then this, this is verse 9, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he brings it all back again. Whether you like this or not, didn't have a good father or not, he's saying he is the good father. And so if you ask him as a father, if you look at him as a father, then he's going to respond to you as a father would, a good father. You ask, that father's going to protect. You ask, that father's going to give. No father is going to be like, when a son comes up, like, I really want to talk to you about some deep things in life. It's going to be like, get out of here, right? A good father would say, I want to listen. I want to help. I want to be a part of. So he says, understand as a father. Then he goes into this, understand holiness. This is a misconception in the church. People deem religion as being holy. Religion is not being holy. Showing up to church is not holy, Reading your Bible is not holy. Being in a small group is not holy. Holiness is determined by a relationship with God 
and being God through the actions of your life to other people. That's holiness, right? The idea that you come to church, but you come to church not just for you. You know why you're here? Because there is either a divine appointment for you here or a divine appointment for you out there or a divine appointment for you out there, right? But this is just to make you aware that you're a vessel to be used. Holiness is when we respond to the things that God's called us to do. It shows the world that we serve a holy God because nobody, nobody's excited about a Jesus that is judgmental, talks above everybody, gathers on a Sunday morning, and does nothing else. Nobody's excited about that Jesus. Right? Nobody's excited about that. Nobody thinks that Jesus, nobody thinks that God is holy. Right? The God that's holy is the people that gather, get refueled, and go out and be the hands and feet to him in this world. That makes him holy. Then he says, here's going to be a struggle for the rest of your life. You're going to want to build your kingdom, but it's my kingdom first. You're always going to, because the world's going to teach you, just keep building your kingdom, right? Get a better job, you know, get a good wife, get kids, you know, get retirement, make a little bit more money, get more secure, get a 401k, set yourself up. Like you're building your kingdom, and this is the problem with a lot of people. You know where the struggle is? Is all of a sudden your kingdom becomes before his, and you know what he does when that happens? You know those little blocks that you've been building? He's like, with that little block. And then all of a sudden you fall down again, and all of a sudden you fall down again, and then you're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Well, here's what's going on. He's trying to remind you whose kingdom you should be building. Right? Like he's going to remind you his kingdom, because this is how we know we're going to build his kingdom. When you would understand that your responsibility while you're on this earth above anything else is to lead other people into a loving relationship with Jesus. That's his kingdom. You know, churches come and go. They do all the time. Churches become popular. Building become popular. Pretty soon they're not popular anymore. Building a church, right, is not building his kingdom, right? Gathering people, not building his kingdom, right? Having masses of people that show up in rooms, not building his kingdom. Building his kingdom is helping every person take a step towards Jesus, disciple them, and send them back out. That's the way it works. That's kingdom building gathering is just a celebration of the work, right? Gathering is a celebration that God has been working and I'm going to come and I'm going to celebrate the God who gave me an opportunity this week to build his kingdom. The God that gave me an opportunity to move forward. So we've got to build his kingdom before ours. Then he goes on, right, into the place that we didn't get to last week that we're going to spend time today. Verse 11, he says this, give us today our daily bread. So give us today our daily bread. Now, for most people in this room, I would say that if you're honest, this is a hard one to comprehend because there are very few people that even know people that have ever been without food. Fair to say? Like the majority of people have not been in a place where people are starving. You're probably not starving. Maybe. Right? Like, you, this is hard because he's talking about this concept of like every day we need to be thankful, right, that we have food on the table. But let's just be honest. You got way, you threw away more food this week, right, than some people eat in an entire week. You threw away in one day more than a person would eat in one week. That's, that's the America we live in. 
we throw away way more food. If, you know, people would eat that food, it would take care of a lot of people, right? So we struggle with this concept of daily bread and this understanding. So I want understanding of what that means. So I want to give you what he was trying to do in the heart of people. Here's what he was trying to do in the heart of people. He was trying to teach this idea of what does it look like to be dependent upon God in every circumstance and understand how this all works. Remember I said in the beginning, do your part and he will do his part, right? Well, it fits in this. So you remember the story of the nation of Israel? They were trapped, you know, in um, Egypt and then Moses went and freed his people, that story. If you don't know, nation of Israel is trapped. They're in slavery. They cry out. Moses goes, rescues his people. They, they go, you might have heard this story, they went across the Red Sea, Red Sea was parted, you know, all of the, you know, the, the Egyptians were killed inside of the Red Sea, they got to the other side, and guess what the first thing they did when they got to the other side after they see God part a sea, kind of what we do, right, God's so awesome, then it's like, can you do more, is this not Christianity to a certain extent, like, why can't we do more, where's the food, I mean, you took me out of Egypt. Where's the food? So God just says, you know what? I'm going to give you food. But here's what I want you to see, right? There's food going to be rained down from heaven. I want you to go out, and I want you to gather three jars of it. If you gather more than three jars of it, you know, then you're going to figure out what happens. So they would, people would go out there, and they didn't trust God, and they'd gather four jars. What do you think happened to the fourth jar? Yeah, it's spoiled. There wasn't, there wasn't, he said, gather enough for the day. What is he trying to teach him? God could have made it for a week, but he's trying to teach him a lesson. What was the lesson? dependence, right? Like you need to depend on me. If you do your part, if you obey me, you go out and get three jars and you put the stuff in the three jars, you always have food. It's a concept. Does that make sense? If you do your part, God can fulfill his promise, right? So here's what I want you to see. When you look at poverty across the world, most of the time poverty is not a financial issue. It's a spiritual issue, right? And I want you to see it this way. And so I'm going to hope I can make, hope this will make sense when I give it to you in this way. So here's what we know about Christianity, right? Or here's what we know about America. So America was founded on Christian values. Now, whether we're there or not, will we all agree that to a certain extent, America founded on Christian values? Some are saying yes, some are saying no, Okay. We can debate that part later, but we will say that you can look at different things that, that are inside of our laws that are completely based upon a Christian foundation, okay? So here would be the first one, right? Every person created in God's image, okay? Meaning that we are image bearers and that we're supposed to treat other people as if they are creation, created by God, Right? So for the most part, compared to other countries, we have our problems, but compared to other countries, America values human life. No? Yes? I'm talking in the beginning. I value human This will make sense later. When you look at other countries, America view valuing human life is way different than it is in other places. They look at human life, and when they look at human life, they value it, and any time you go against the value of human life, you see the problems uh, following the not the value of human life. When we don't value human life, when we allow human life to be destroyed, when we don't treat humans the right way, the fabric of our country goes away. Does that make more sense when we don't treat people well and we don't do the things they're supposed to do the way they're supposed to do? Here's the other thing. Very much a Christian value. 
If you can work, what should you do? Work. Very biblical. When Scripture talks about lazy people, people who choose not to work, he says lazy people are wicked. That's just the way that it is. We live, should live, in a country founded on this idea. If you work, right, and, and you do the things that God's called you to do, and you put in the time that you're supposed to do, then work equals you can eat, right? If you work, you can eat. Now, this is the funny thing. I grew up that way. Like, I grew up where we had chores, and there were chores to do before supper, and this was the idea. Do your chores, and guess what? You eat. You don't do your chores. Guess where your food is until your chores are done? In the fridge. You ain't eating until your chores are done. And everybody's like, that's so archaic and so mean. Okay, if you're an employer today trying to employ people to work in your business, you will understand that part of our problem is, is we have coddled our children for way too long and not taught them that you work and then eat and because now we have kids that would rather sit at home and expect to eat than they're in the workforce today, right? I mean, we just do that. And, and again, I'm not blaming the kids. We did it. I mean, we said it's okay. You don't really have to do anything. That we would say that, and we would say when the fabric of America starts to go in the, the backwards direction is when we go against the principles of Scripture, that it's okay to sit at home and do nothing and get paid to do it. Everybody's happy about this, right? But this, but this is the way that it gets, right? When you're paid to sit at home, the fabric of what we're trying to get done doesn't line up with the basis of what Scripture says. And when you go against that, again, this idea, do our part and then God can do his part, right? They go together. And people are like, why is America prosperous and why is America have? Well, again, you're going to see it go away if America goes away, right? The things that we're doing inside of those places, or just in, in, in looking at that as a contradiction, like, or not a contradiction, but looking at it in a way uh, that's different than, than maybe you've understood. So the other part of it is, and this is what's great, so there are people that can't work, true? So there are people that just can't work. So here's the idea. So for the people that can't work, biblically, this is very clear. For the people that could work, what's God going to do? Bless them. Why? so that they can be generous to the people who can't, right? That was the whole idea. So you work, God blesses, you're generous, so you can take care of those who, orphans, widows, people who can't do, that's our job to be able to take care of them. And when we fail our responsibility, right? Because this is what's happened in our world today. You worked, you got, you hoarded, and people are, are, are in need because you chose to go against the principle that God said. Work, you get, and you give away. That's the way it's supposed to work. So we had to bring in systems outside of the biblical principle to fix it because Christians won't do what they're called to do. Work, be generous, work, be generous, work, be generous, and we would take care of a lot of the problems we have, right? That foundationally, when we're talking about give us this day our daily bread, foundationally we would understand that a lot of our problems of daily Bread stuff comes from spiritual issues, not necessarily because people can't make money and take care of themselves. Okay, it's because we're going against the biblical principle, just like it is in India. Okay, so to go back to India as an example, 
So one of the things we know about this country is they don't value human life. And I know this because when you get off on the train station in India, this was common. I've been over there multiple different times. You get up on the train station, you see these girls that are begging at the train station. Okay? And if you're an American and you get off and you see these girls, what do you think you're going to do? You're probably going to give. And you know why you're going to give? Because these girls are disfigured, right? Their faces are disfigured. You feel terrible for them. They're sitting there. These are young girls, and they're disfigured. You're going to automatically give. And so I automatically give. And then I talked to the guy that was with us, and he says, you know how those girls are there? You know why they're there? Because their dad had too many kids, and they didn't have enough money to take care of their family. So the way to make money was to disfigure your daughter, put her at the train station. She begs all day and then brings money home. And it's completely normal. Nobody sees that as an abnormal act, right? Why? Because they don't value human life in that way, right? They don't value those things and who they are based upon what they believe. Same concept. So we went back another time and... and we realized that there were these girls in the red light district in brothels that needed rescued, and when they needed rescued, they needed somebody to teach them how to do life, because when you're in a brothel most of your life, you don't even know the difference between night and day. You don't know how to do anything. You were sold into a brothel, which is a sex house, and you didn't know what to do. So anyway, these, these girls were rescued, and they were brought to this home that we were working at. It's like three hours away from where the red light district is, and the idea was, like, listen, get these girls away, teach them a trade. And for some of them, it was until they died because they had diseases that were killing them that were given because of what happened to them, right? And some of them was, you're going to live, right? And, and we're going to help you have a trade. And some of them was, we need to teach your kids because you're not going to be here very long, right? So that's what the house was for. But you know how those girls ended up in the brothel? Little girls. Because their dad decided one of the best ways to make money is to sell their daughter into a brothel who's chained to a bed where men will come in and have sex with them up to 30 times a day. Now, you can't comprehend that, right? Because of what you believe, what you know inside of you. What do you know inside of you? Human life matters. And anybody that has a heart and believes foundationally in faith would never sell their kids. Like, those things don't work that way, right? So... Basic human, the idea that, that, that human life even matters, right? Or you think about this. We would go through Mumbai and, and New Delhi and staying in there, and you'd look out of your hotel room, and there's people sleeping on the streets, and then you'd wake up the next morning, and there are people dead on the streets. And so they would go around with trucks, throw all the dead bodies in, and then they would, you know, take them out to the, do whatever with them. I don't know what they did with them, but they would just keep piling them on. There wasn't funerals. Well, anyway, you know, you talk about it, a lot of these people are starving or they're homeless. And I'm like, how, how is it possible in India that these people are starving? Because everywhere you walk, there are cows, right? Everywhere you go in India, there are cows everywhere. 330 million cows eating 20% of their food supply and people are starving. Why? Because their religion says you cannot kill a cow. Why? It might be your brother. What? It might be your sister reincarnated into an animal, so we can't kill the animal. You see, the, the faith system dictates this idea of reincarnation, so you make a decision that you'd rather see people starve because your belief system. Same things. You know, if you've ever been to a farm before that has lots of mice and rats, you know, and you do the best you can to keep them down, it's still kind of a horrific sight. 
Well, when you go to India, take that times 10, right? Mice and rats eat up to 15% of their food supply, right? And they won't kill them. For what reason? Yeah, they think that it might be their relation, that it might be because of reincarnation. But do you see what I'm saying? Foundationally, poverty is a spiritual issue as much as it is as anything else. Like some of these things can be fixed if you fix the spiritual issue of it all. Do your part and allow God to do his part, right? And if we do that, then God will come through. So the whole idea of give us this day our daily bread is here's what we need to learn. If you will do your part, then God can do his part. But if you choose to go against foundationally all these things, how does God, how does God a- able to answer the promise when you won't do your part? Right? So we need to understand that. Then he goes on and he says this in verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. So in this scripture, I want to be very clear. This scripture is intentionally talking to Christian people and what it means for a Christian when it comes to their sin. But I want to make sure that you understand, right? I don't want to leave this opportunity out there. I'm going to talk about the two areas of sin that scripture talks about, Okay. The sin, and this is what I want you to understand, sin is our number one enemy. Like you might think it's your neighbor, you might think it's the government, you might think that it's people around you, you might think it's, you know, people that have been harassed. Your number one enemy is sin, okay? And here's why. Every single person in this room, regardless of what household you grew up in, regardless of anything that's happened in your life, here's the deal. All have sinned, all. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And if you don't fix this, if you don't fix it, you, because of sin, will spend eternity in hell. Period. That's the way it is. Not one person in here gets off by saying, well, I grew up in a church, and I grew up in a Christian home, and and my parents are Christian, so I'm Christian too. Nope, you're not. You are saved because you made a decision. This is your decision. You will pay for your sin or Jesus will pay for your sin. Those are the only two. Your parents didn't pay for it. The people around you didn't pay for it. That's not the way that it works. Okay, so you have to make a decision. So number one enemy in all of our lives is sin and you need to rectify that. And if you don't, you will spend the rest of your life chasing the wrong enemy. That's just the way that it works. If you don't fix what's naturally broke inside of you, because for every person in this room, there's something naturally broke from the beginning. You were created to be in a relationship with God, and when you are not, there is something broken in you that can only be fixed by Jesus, period. And if you don't fix it, you will spend your entire life chasing those things to try to fix what's missing inside of you. And you'll try to fix it, it doesn't fix it. And you'll try to use this and try to fix it, it doesn't fix it. You have to fix the problem from the heart of it and what is broken, and that is you are not in relationship with Jesus Christ and you need to fix it, okay? I'm gonna read to you out of Romans. This is what Romans uh, 3.21 says. This is, again, talking about the idea to forgive us of our debts, we've also forgiven our debtors. Verse 21, but now apart from the law and the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now make sure we get this. What does righteousness mean? 
Righteousness means that we are in right standing. Okay, It has nothing to do with anything that you have ever done. It's everything that Jesus did for you. That's what makes you righteous. When you stand in front of God someday, you are able to enter into the kingdom of heaven because you are righteous or in right standing based upon what Jesus Christ did for you. And he said, I'll pay for your sin. And so your sin is covered and you are now made righteous, right? Make sure that we understand that because going to church, showing up for small group, reading your Bible does not put you in right standing. Being religious doesn't put you in right standing. The only way that your sin for salvation can ever be forgiven is you let Jesus Christ's blood cover all of your sin. That's how you become righteous. And here's what he says. He goes on and says, uh, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. This is what I just said, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Again, uh, solidifying what we just talked about. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. What is atonement? That he atoned for or paid for what you should be paying for. That's what atonement means. He atoned for your sin. He took what you deserved on the cross. That's what atonement is, right? He, he paid for your sins. And through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just uh, the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ Jesus. So he tells you, you've got to make a decision. Who's going to pay for your sin? Jesus Christ is going to pay for your sin. You are saved. You are righteous. You have defeated the enemy. Exciting, right? Like you, by making that decision, it'll be the best decision you ever make because it takes the power of Satan away because he can no longer have the hold that he's had on you. Ever. You are free because of Christ Jesus. Then Romans 8 goes on and talks about this. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He just says, once you give your life to Jesus Christ, guess what the enemy's going to try to do for the rest of your life? Try to condemn you, right? Going to try to, you are this, and you are that, and you are this, and you can stand boldly and say, you know what? I fixed that problem. I fixed that problem. I am free of condemnation. I am, even in the midst of my mistakes, still a son and a daughter of the king. You, as the accuser, can no longer accuse me, right? And you got to set that straight, right? You got to get that right in your heart. You got to take the power of the accuser and the power of the liar away by getting your salvation set because you choose to have somebody else pay for your sin and you become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to tell you today don't wait. 
Don't contemplate. Don't think about. Like, you need to understand what this means. You need to set that right even today. Okay? Here's the other thing. So then if you are saved and there is no more condemnation, here's one of the things we know. After you give your life to Jesus Christ, do we sin anymore? (laughs) Somewhat of a problem, isn't it? Right? Like, you would sure think that you give your life to Jesus Christ and it would be a lot easier. Guess what? It becomes a lot harder. Right? It becomes so much more difficult to do that. So now we get to this place where it says, you know, we're praying, God, forgive us of our debts. Right? Forgive us of our debts. Right? Get us to this place where we understand these things. So what does it look like to ask for forgiveness, and why should you ask for forgiveness after you're saved? Now, I want to give you an example. So here's part of the problem. So, and I grew up this way, so I'm going to teach you what I was taught So here's how I was taught. I was taught that forgiveness is a religious act, right? So think about all the things that you do all day, and then when you get to the end of the day, you take that list and you confess all those things, and then you throw them in the trash, okay? And then as long as every single day you remember everything that you did and you write them all down and you confess them and you throw them in the trash, you're good. And if you're worried about being good, let's say the prayer, now I lay me down to sleep and God might take your life tonight, so get it right right? So if you were worried, let me make sure that you get it all right, because so you would just do this, and and religion has taught this, right? So you can go out and do what you want as long as you go to a priest and confess, or you can do whatever you want as long as you go at night and kneel beside your bed and confess, and you could just keep taking it, and you keep throwing it into the trash, and you keep throwing it in the bucket, and you think that you're good. Well, the, the issue is you've missed the whole point, because you're never dealing with the trash. You're just picking it up and doing it all over again. You're just picking it up and you're doing it all over again. And you're just saying, you know what? This is my out. So I'm not, I mean, I, I want to get it right, but I don't really care about getting it right because I got a trash can. I can put them all in at night. Right? Well, that misses the whole point of asking for forgiveness. You know why we ask for forgiveness? Because Troy, Troy and I, let's, Troy and I are close friends, right? So if, if I love Troy, right? Like if you really love somebody and you really respect that person and I hurt Troy, like I did something to hurt him, If I love him, what am I going to do? I'm going to say, I'm sorry. Dude, I'm sorry. I made a mistake. And for somebody who loves you back, they're going to be like, it's okay, man. We're still in this together. That mistake isn't going to separate us. That mistake's not going to keep us apart. And I'm going to keep coming back. The reason that I would go to Troy is because I love him, right? The reason that I would try not to hurt Troy again is because I love him. Taking sins and just throwing them in the trash and going out and do them again defeats the whole purpose. Like, if you love the Lord, then stop hurting him. If you love the Lord, don't just use this as, well, I got a trash can every night and I just keep fixing all the problems. If I love him, I'm just going to come to him and say, I'm sorry. And you know what's going to happen? For all of our relationship till the day that I die, I'm going to keep saying, I'm sorry. And if he loves me, he's going to keep saying, it's okay. Because that's what true relationship is. True relationship is knowing that if I love somebody, I'm just going to do it because I love them. Nobody has to tell me. Nobody has to tell me to end up in a booth. Nobody has to tell me to go to a confessional. Nobody has to tell me to do. I just do it because we're in relationship. That's what he's talking about. So when he's saying, ask for forgiveness, and we're trying to figure out, well, how does that all fit in, and what should I do, and how should I put it? It's so easy. If you love him, just say you're sorry, and he loves you, and he's still going to want to be in relationship with you. Pretty simple, right? But we got to make sure that we do it 
in the right way. Then he goes on and he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So we already know this, like God's not leading you into temptation. Do you know what I mean? Like God's not out there and being like, I'm going to catch that sucker. You know, I'm going to put these things. We're going to try to see how he does. That's not the way that God works. What he was talking about is this. Here's what he knows about you as a Christian person being in the world. He knows that each one of us struggle with different things. He just knows that. Everybody in this room is represented of something that trips you up a lot. Okay, so think about it. Whatever that thing is, you know what I mean? Like you get tripped up by it and you know what it is and you know that if this is going on, you're going to end up going down the wrong path. We know what it is. Here's what he's telling you. Before you get to the place where you have to resist temptation, put up guardrails before you ever get to that temptation. Does that make sense? So if it's like when I'm alone, I do things I shouldn't do when I be alone, so then don't be alone right? That's the guardrail, right? If it is when I get on my phone and I start looking at certain things, it leads to other certain things and put up the guardrail, then don't go on those certain things, right? If it is I end up in a certain place and when I end up in this certain place, I make these bad decisions, then don't go to the place, right? That's the idea that what he's saying is, is that if you put up the guardrails that makes it so that we're not in a place where we're fighting against temptation, he's going to honor you for putting up the guardrails, He's going to honor your life for being able to do those things. But then he also says, deliver us from the evil one. Here's what he's talking about. For some of us in this room right now, you need delivered. There are things that are going on in your life. You feel like you're in a deep pit. You feel like in a place that you can't get out. You feel like that you're, you've been climbing to the top and you just keep slipping back down. Some of you need delivered and you've tried everything to be delivered. And he's just saying today, listen, I will deliver you. That's his promise, right? His promise is this, that some of us, this is the cool thing. For some of us, this is your story, instantaneous delivery, Right? Somebody come and prayed for you and instantaneously God delivered you from this and moved you into this. And some of us have a story of deliverance after deliverance after deliverance after deliverance after deliverance until we're free. Right? Like that's some of us. Some of our story is just, he just is walking a journey with me. Because both of those things, when you are delivered out of something, builds your faith. Right? That, that's the whole idea. Deliver me, not so that at the end of the day I just don't have to experience, but deliver me because James says that through these trials, my faith is going to be stronger. Through these things, my faith is going to be greater. Through these things, as you deliver me out of them, I'm going to be a different person. I'm going to be able to face these struggles in a completely different way. So deliver us from that stuff. So again, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Verse 14 for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others of their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Not, again, I think people try to make this too complicated. Here's the reality. Most religious people, it's not all, but most religious people, and when I say religious people, I speak from a standpoint of a lot of you guys know who we're talking about. It's the people that have self-righteousness, right? And through their self-righteousness, they're very judgmental of other people. Anybody ever met one, right? Because of their self-righteousness, they become very judgmental and very critical of other people, right? Here's all he's saying. Self-righteous, critical people usually have a heart problem. 
right? Judgmental, self-righteous people. And you know why they're self-righteous? It's because what this scripture says, the heart of somebody who is forgiven will also forgive. It's just the way. I can be a jerk, right? Like I can make mistakes, but my heart is not judgmental. It is not. My heart is grace for people. And the reason, you know why my heart is graceful? It's because of his grace. I can only give what I've been given. And so somebody who's been rescued from the depths that I've been rescued from, I'm going to give that grace as it was given to me. Right? So don't make it too difficult. All he's saying is have a forgiving spirit because you have been forgiven. And if you struggle with having a forgiving spirit, you should probably look back to you were forgiven too. Right? And you should maybe check your heart. If you're struggling to forgive somebody, have you forgotten how much that you've been forgiven? Because that might be why you're a critical spirit today. You might have missed, you might have forgot, you might have, you know, got off on the wrong path when it comes to that, but we need to have that forgiving spirit. Then he ends with this, verse 16. The worship team, you guys can come back up. Let me finish with this. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so it will be not obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So here's what he's talking about fasting. So if you read Scripture, a lot of times fasting and prayer are put together, right? And, and again, it's not something where it says you have to fast. All it's saying is, is that you, can, you should consider fasting, right? Because fasting does something to help our prayer life. Right? And remember what our prayer life is. Our prayer life is a relational connection to our Father in heaven, God. And so how does fasting do that? So if any of you have ever fasted, here's what happens. So like I can go a whole day and be busy all day long and not eat and never think about food. As soon as I fast, you know what the thing I think about every minute of the day? <laughs> food. Right? It just happens. I don't even know why it happens. Like, I could be busy. I never think about food. You know, it doesn't matter till the end of the day. All of a sudden, I decide I'm going to fast and be like, the only thing I think about is I haven't ate today. I haven't ate today. I haven't ate today. Right? Like, I don't know why that goes on. Like, any time that you choose something, whatever it is, if any of you guys have ever done that, as soon as you make your decision, all of a sudden is all you ever think about is the decision you just made of what you're going to give up. Now, here's my recommendation of why you should fast. Okay? When you fast, this is what you're going to think. Oh, I need food. And what you should do when you get to that place is in relationship through prayer, say to God, but I need you more. Is that right? Like, I need food, but God, I need you more. I need, you know, because I'm going to give you this challenge. If you're a young person today, you know, one of the things that we know is most young people struggle with how much they have their phone. For some of you, maybe not all of you, right? But struggle out of your phone. I'm just going to say it to young people because older people always give me the excuse of, well, I couldn't give up my phone because I got to use it for business. And, which might be true, not be true. I'm just going to say, think about this for just a second. Young people, if you gave up your phone for a week, like one week, how many times would you be like, I just need my phone. I can't talk to my friends. I can't do nobody, right? I'm just saying, I think that this would be a struggle. Like, I think it would be a struggle 
you know, and again, at the end of the day, like I need my phone, but God did, I need you more. I need you more. And I'm just going to challenge you to pick something this week. And we're going to talk about it. I'm going to challenge you. Pick something to fast. Because I think in the midst of that, as you realize, you might have some wrongful dependence. You might be depending on some things that are distracting you away from what you need really more, more than that. And when you fast, some of those things come to light, right? So pick something this week and do that because in that, here's what I think you're going to see. And most people see this. Man, I can't believe I was that dependent on that. And I can't believe how my relationship is now changed with the Lord. Like something just came out of it that I can't explain to you, but, but something has changed. So here's some challenges for this week, some next steps. Here's the next step. Here's the first one. If you are not saved, you need to get saved today. If you have not come to a place where you know in the heart of your hearts that you have given your life to Jesus Christ and that he's going to pay for your sin and that you can be confident that you're going to stand in front of him and he's going to judge you based upon the blood of Jesus Christ, I would never wait another day. I would never wait another day. Ask for forgiveness. Change your life. Don't wait for the next time that you could do because you never know whether you're going to get tomorrow. You never know what that's going to look like in your life. Here's the other thing. Maybe some of you are at a place right now where you need to confess some sin. Not from the idea of religion so that you can dump it in a basket, but for some of you today, you need to confess sin because you have hurt your father. And you just need to go to him and you just need to tell him, you know, I have hurt you and I'm sorry for that and I want to be better and I want to do something different in my life. Or maybe for some of you guys, you have some unforgiveness. You know that person, those people, and, and it's just been stirring inside of you. And maybe today is the day you say, you know what? I can't fix this person. I'm going to give them to God. I'm going to let him fix what only he can fix. So maybe you give that unforgiveness. Or here's the other thing. Maybe some of you need to set up some guardrails. Like what are some guardrails that you need to, you've been falling into temptation because you've been putting yourself in a place where you can be tempted. And maybe you need to put up a guardrail so you're not in that place anymore. Or maybe some of you today, you need to pray for deliverance. Some of you are in a pit and you've been trying to get out on your own, and you need to somebody pray with you and pray for you today to be delivered out of a pit because God delivers those people. God will be with you, and he will deliver you out of those places. And here's the last one. Pick a fast for a day, two days, two weeks, whatever you want to do, week. And as this happens, oh, I really need... I want you to remind yourself, but you need him more. And just see what God does through that fasting and praying. Will you stand so I can pray for you? I just want you to know as we're playing this last song, if you want prayed for, if you want somebody to pray with you, whether you want to be delivered, help to confess your sins, whatever those things are, if you want to get saved, this altar, you know, is open or this front row is open. People in the back, you can go to the back, it's open. We can have some people back there praying with you. But again, if the spirit moves, don't stay in your seat, right? Listen and obey and let God be what only he can be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. We trust you. And we're just praying today, Lord, that as we understand what it looks like on how we should pray, Lord, that you will change us from the inside out. 
Allow us to be dependent upon you. Allow us to understand who you are. Allow us to understand how we can be in better relationship with you. Lord, we love you. And it's your name we pray. Amen.